0: Hi, Garbage
1: listeners. I'm Brandon Mercer.
0: And I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, April 14th, 2016, and this is episode 22 of Garbage.
1: Yeah, so um, we have had a lot of people writing us emails this week, and we have a lot of things to digest, don't we?
0: We do. I would first like to make a statement. (laughs) We are not journalists. We don't do research. No. Uh... (laughs) We're not even really like an open b s d podcast,
1: yeah, this is like the backstage tour at um amateur hour, like there's nothing to see here, but people watch it anyhow
0: yeah it's it's maybe just the uh opinion column yeah of a newspaper or something i mean we're no we're not any more an open b s d show than we are a JavaScript show because we talk about it, but we don't really like javascript, no, so yeah. If you're wondering where that came from, just in response to some feedback that we got.
1: Yeah, and it's cool. I mean, frankly, I love feedback, whether you guys are like, stop talking. You shouldn't be like talking about things you know nothing about.
0: Mm -hmm. That's
1: cool. You know, like maybe it helps somebody, but you think I'm an idiot and I should shut up. That's cool. But other people are like, this is really helping me. And I love this and I love the content and the information. So just we're not like upset about it, but we're just letting you guys know, we just have some lives, and we do some coding, and we work on some stuff, and this is what we see, and this is what we hate. Doesn't mean we're right or wrong. Doesn't mean you're right or wrong. It's like the guy who uh, roasts his own coffee and grinds it himself and makes his own pour over. Is he making coffee better than the person who likes to go to a Starbucks and have them make it for him because it's convenient and they don't have time to make it? No. Neither one's right.
0: But he is a hipster.
1: Yeah. I mean you know i mean you can both be hipsters by the way just so you know yeah i think it's just about setting
0: expectations yeah and i don't think we've uh set any expectations or said that we are a certain type of show i think yeah. people just kind of assume that because we're both open bst developers so yeah uh we both have busy lives and uh we don't get paid for this we're not sponsored by squarespace and all those other sponsors. Um, so we don't really have time to, uh, do formal research and all that kind of stuff. Yeah.
1: But anyhow, yeah. Another, uh, unrelated topics, we will try and talk about some of the things that were said about, um, you know, the relationship between the projects. Cause I think there is some stuff to be learned from all that. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a fit <laughs> with, um, the database layer and, and, uh, encoding in go this week. So I want to talk about that, and just let you guys know my thoughts and opinions. And um, let's see, what else was there? There, I guess there's stuff happening in OpenBSD as well that you were going to talk about, yeah?
0: Uh, I just um, noticed a flurry of commits on NVMe from mm. uh, DLG. Nice. And I thought, hey, that's like a new thing, right? Because I've seen uh, when you go to order a ThinkPad you yeah. sometimes get the option of an SSD or like a NVMe SSD. Right. And I thought like, wow, that's like fancy new technology, isn't it? Um, so that's cool that OpenBSD is getting support for it. And then I went and looked in the, the old CVS web and right. looked at the driver to see the history of it. And that driver actually started two years ago. Hmm. Uh, DLG started working on it. And I thought that was pretty weird that he, uh, started on it and then, kind of took a hiatus and now he's back to working on it so i sent out an email to him and i said i guess this is research isn't it yeah but uh i was just (laughs) curious like uh what was going on with it and he said that um it's basically working and you can use it uh he's just like working out some minor bugs and um he has one corruption issue with a particular device Mm -hmm. so maybe don't run it uh on your production server that houses all your baby photos and such. Yeah. Um, but he's, uh, working on it and it's, uh, pretty fast. So that's cool.
1: So now NVME is basically a different interface for solid state discs. And I think they're up to like, they have discs that are pushing like two and a half gigabytes a second reads and one and a half gigabytes a second sustained writes. And so, I don't know too much about this, but I know it's uh, basically a performance thing for solid-state drives, right?
0: Uh, Yeah, so there's like no SATA controller. That's right. So um, it's kind of more direct, I guess. Um, But in typical OpenBSD fashion, we kind of um, put a SCSI layer on top of it Mm -hmm. so that everything that uh, can talk SCSI can just see it normally, which is neat. So, yeah, Um, the one bad thing about it is that uh, I actually saw this in an unrelated thing today, that the power consumption of NVMe devices is quite high. What? So, like, there were, um, it was like a benchmark, and it was a whole bunch of SSD drives, and then, like, an NVMe drive. Hmm. Maybe it was this particular one, or I don't know, but it was almost, like, twice as high uh, power consumption as a SSD even under like idle and heavy
1: load. That's kind of unfortunate, because one of the things about solid-state drives is they were about half the power usage of a spinning disk, mm-hmm. and in addition to the heat being much lower, uh, your battery would last a-, a while longer from that. So,
0: Yeah, so I don't really know too much about it um, other than these random things that I've seen.
1: Well, it's cool to see that stuff going in.
0: Yeah, um, so DLG was, uh, he said he would like some hardware that he can physically remove from a box so he can easily work on hot plug support. Yep. Um, And I don't think he's made like a formal request for this yet, but if you have any spare NVMe hardware that you could throw at uh, DLG, um, maybe even on loan, that would be neat.
1: Yep. Yeah, he's a good guy. He does a lot of good stuff all over the all over the operating system, a lot of networking stuff, and this as well so anything you can do to help him out helps everybody out
0: Uh, and I think that is all the OpenBSD news that I had Uh, I haven't been paying attention to things very closely this week because I've had a hectic personal life
1: yeah, I know how that goes I've been following on uh, the mailing list just a bit, I know uh, I'm trying to get around to reading some diffs and uh, okaying a couple things here and there, but mostly I've been uh, very, very busy myself. So um, there are tons of cool things happening across all the BSDs. I feel like we didn't really do it enough justice this week, but uh, if you. I think there's a Twitter account that basically tracks source changes and ports changes, so if you guys are really interested to see what's happening, that's where to go and we will continue to try and provide some more insights when there are big things happening and cool things happening.
0: And uh, certainly on BSD now, mm-hmm. they are more of a news-oriented podcast where they yep. uh, follow this stuff closer than we do. Yep. So what else is going on, friend?
1: Well, I don't know. Um, I had this go thing that I wanted to talk about, All and right. I and I feel like until I get it off my chest, I won't be able to focus on anything else. <laughs> All right. All right, so you know I'm a fan of Go. I'm a fan of the toolchain. I'm a fan of the features that the um, toolchain provides, um, the source code coverage in your tests, the built-in testing and benchmarking, and all this stuff. I love how it compiles down to a binary, and um, you just stick it on your server, and voila, it works. And um, But the thing that I've been having that's just really driving me up a wall lately is um, the libraries for encoding JSON, decoding JSON, and um, accessing the database. And my problem with this is databases are fun, so nulls are different than empties, and I guess that's really not a database thing, but it becomes more fun when you define your um, data structure in Go and they have all these SQL, like null string, null int, null int 64, null everything. And what happens when you populate that data from the database table is you basically get the option to, uh, to evaluate this um, SQL null type to see if it's valid or not. If it's valid, you use the value. If it's not, you say that it's empty. And uh, that's not so bad. I get where they're coming from with that, and it makes sense to me. The problem is, is when you go to take that same data that you just got out of the database, and you want to encode that into JSON and send it back to your web browser. And what winds up happening is you send a whole bunch of the null type objects back instead of the value for a particular field. And I said, wait a second, there has to be a better way to do all this. So what I started doing was, in my data structures, I would say like, this is a pointer to a string, uh, because coincidentally, if you have a null or a nil in your database, a null in your database, Go converts that to a nil, and you can have a nil pointer. Uh, you can pass that into the JSON um, encoding, and it'll ship back out to the browser, and everybody's happy. There's really no issues with that. The problem kind of comes in when you get into things like... Int 64s, because you don't want to say like, oh, this is a pointer to an int 64. <laughs> it's a foreign key relationship between these two tables. But, um, at any rate, that's kind of where I've hit a crossroads because, um, you need to check what comes out of the database before trying to populate it onto, you know, an int field in your data structure. And so that's not too terrible because you know, you have a couple checks. I feel like that's my happy medium. Um, But I have an entire application worth of um, JavaScript that normalizes that um, SQL null type that was being returned back from the application to pull the value out rather than having a wonderful developer do that in the application layer. So, anyway, it uh, it was kind of a pain point for me. And I'm and I'm also having the other problem where I get a request in, I decode it, and I you know populate my data structure, and I go to persist it to the database and you know certain types of values don't like to be null in there as well, so it winds up breaking things. So you have to validate some things a certain way and then um write things to the database a little bit more carefully than I, I guess I'm used to with something like an ORM or even in Java it just seemed like it was not as much of an issue but I don't remember us well the difference was we weren't going straight from the database model to you know encoding a JSON response mm-hmm. but anyway that's my pain point it was just a library thing I don't know that um the SQL tools in Go are terrible and I don't know that they're like fantastic but um the json library definitely leaves a little bit to be desired um because of performance and then you start implementing like the marshal and unmarshal methods for a particular data structure and then you you know all these problems kind of go away and you can solve the performance but that kind of feels a little bit like a bit of work as well so that was my complaint and that's my sticking point but uh all in all it's not too terrible
0: are there uh, like competing JSON modules for Go or is there just everybody uses the built-in one?
1: There are competing ones. Um, I'm What I'm talking about here is the built-in stuff.
0: All right. Because like, I know in Ruby there's like a dozen of them and every time you use one, you like fetch a dependency of some other project and they're like, no, I'm using this specific version of <laughs> the JSON thing, so you got to use that. And then there's like a meta module. Mm -hmm. So you use this interface and then it it dynamically picks a JSON backend that you have installed. It's such a pain in the ass. Um, that's why I kind of like the, from what I've seen of go is that they're, they have a lot of stuff built in and they're trying to make that stuff the best so that people can just use that.
1: And, and yeah, exactly. And that's what I see too. Like the HTTP libraries, um, Brad, um, I want to say Fitzpatrick, he went through the HTTP library, profiled it, and basically started at the top of the list and was like, oh, I can make this faster. Oh, I can make that faster. And just went through and improved the performance. And I think similar things have happened in the other libraries as people use them, as things get fixed. Um, you know, they're made a little bit more performant. Um, not too much is changing in the usability, but, uh, I agree. I, th- I think they're definitely usable. There are substitute routers that are a little bit more performant and a little bit more straightforward to use. Um, but the built-in stuff is just so adequate for for most people that unless you know you need something different, you should stick with the built-in stuff as far as I'm concerned.
0: Mm-hmm. How do you iterate over JSON stuff in Go when you don't really know what you're looking at?
1: Um, so what you do is um, you pass in... So you would create an instance of an object or a data structure. Um, It might be a map. It could be um, some data type that you've defined. And you pass a pointer to that into a decoder. And then you pass the data into a Marshall function. And then that will um, marry that data as best it can to the data structure that you passed in. So it has to inspect the data structure in order to do that, obviously. And then you get, um, you know, your object or your data structure has whatever data you passed in there populated to it out the other side. And if it doesn't know where to put something, it just doesn't do anything with it. Right. So, so you
0: have to know the format of the thing that you're parsing.
1: That's time. right. Yep. Ahead of time.
0: So how yeah. do you how do you fetch something like from an API when you don't know or care about the format of it? you can't just like iterate and say like oh that's this is now starting an array or this is a a string value or something like that
1: yeah well i'm a little torn on this i don't know that i've done the best thing here but um for the for the purposes of the apis that i've implemented for my use um i define incoming messages as a map of string string um or i i define it as a map of strings interfaces so you could pass in like the name is a string and then you could say like the age is 23 and that would be an integer or something like that Um, so my incoming stuff all goes into a map because I need to authenticate the request and I need to um, calculate a mac and all this other stuff so inbound stuff that's what I do do I know that that's the best way to do it not necessarily but it's what what's working now and then on the way back out, I return back, um, the predefined data structure that we agree on, which is basically like an API result. And it has like a status code, a list of results, a message on it that says like status success or whatever. And then there might be some other kind of ancillary messages, but that's what I do, um, just to keep things simple. And that works for the most part. There have been some cases where. Um, i'm posting in just a ginormous amount of data because it's much faster to send in you know fourteen hundred inquiries in a single request than it is to you know make fourteen hundred round trips mm-hmm. so in that case um this is a well to be clear, the public facing side is a map, and then this internal stuff once I know what that particular request is i'm building other api calls in and I can define the data types there so. Um for me, I know that at that point I'm building a particular query into another system, and so I build a, the data type to go with that particular query, and then voila. So, for instance, my API would say, like, slash API, slash get, slash eligibility, or something like that. And that um, particular route will map to a handler, and so that handler already knows I'm going to get an eligibility data structure. So it can unmarshal and whatever the request i think i said that right yeah the only the only time i had an issue was the authentication layer because it tries to authenticate a request and it doesn't know what it's looking at if it's looking at a map or an, a complex data type or a structure so that was the only time i had an issue was that a crazy way to say all that i think it was pretty crazy
0: uh i kind of followed it i guess i'm just used to uh being lazy in ruby when you want to <laughs> just like parse a whole json blob and then you're not too particular about about what's in it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, it makes sense for like an API that you're working with where you have all the documentation for it, mm-hmm. but to like write something quickly or whatever, where you just want to parse the JSON and walk through it and grab something. seems like it would be tedious to have to map out everything that's in it.
1: Yeah. I mean, really that's, that's what I like the map for like a map of string string. It's almost like, you know, a, a get request, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you'd, it's not too much extra work to to just marshal it into that particular lazy type of map yeah. and then pull things out of it by name.
0: All right. Do you feel better that your chest has been unburdened?
1: I, I think so. All right. For the most part, I'm enjoying writing Go right now, and I've been working on a lot of cool stuff and getting a lot of cool things going. So it's been rewarding at, at the very least. So.
0: All right. So what else is going on?
1: Not really a whole lot, I don't think. I think that's basically it.
0: All right, I guess we're done. Cool. I have actually not really been focusing on computers for the past week.
1: Oh, I don't blame you there.
0: Yeah. And uh, I'm going to Boston this weekend.
1: Ah, you're going to park the car?
0: Park the car. (laughs) Uh, My brother is racing in the Boston Marathon on Monday. Ah, cool stuff. So I get to deal with the t s a which is always fun,
1: yeah, tell' him you uh you refuse the body scan
0: oh always i don't I've never gone through that uh the porno scanner as they're called,
1: yeah, yeah, well, we do have an absolute not a ton, but we have a lot of um people who've written in this week um yes. some of them are asking questions about well first off, you guys. Are fantastic for taking the time to write in and let us know. Um, one of the things that I probably should touch on in greater detail at another point is, um, Stefan Sperling, the guy who worked in the drivers for IWM, um, and IWN, we talked last week about the history of it. And he took the time to, uh, write out in great detail exactly what happened. Um, and he said, um, all this information is public already. Uh, it's just not collected in one place. So he said absolutely make it available on the show and we will do that. Um, so we should probably take some time to go over that, uh, maybe at a later date. Um, but anyway, you guys were asking questions about, um, you know, ports and firewalls and, uh, just generally commenting on the BSD talk that we had. Um, and the difference between like FreeBSD and OpenBSD and NetBSD. And that's really cool stuff, like being able to hear your guys' perspective on it. The one thing that I took away from it was that um it feels to me like the community members, like the consumers of OpenBSD and FreeBSD and NetBSD are very passionate and really want to see collaboration between the projects and they want to see you know hardware acceleration for graphics cards and they want to see network adapters run faster and they want to see packets cross the ether faster and they want everything like they want ZFS and storage to happen across the board because it sounds like you guys are a consumer of OpenBSD for one uh, particular niche thing and you're a consumer of FreeBSD for another niche thing and you want to see some more overlap and, um, it seems to me like the people who are actively involved in the projects, um, kind of are, are at a little bit different place. This is just my personal opinion, again. Um, and I think that what that says is, you know, the projects are different. Um, we have different goals. We are run differently. Um, Michael Dexter emailed us and he's like, look, these projects are not run the same way, and they're not. And, um, While I think that there's perceptions about, you know, uh, exactly how things are run, like ours is completely socialist and ours is completely dictatorship and ours is completely whatever, I think there's probably a little bit softer ground in between those, um, you know, um, polar, you know, standpoints. But they are run different. And it may not be like a dictatorship in one and a, you know, democracy in another, but, there, things happen differently between those projects. And I think that, um, as a group of developers, bringing those two things together is, is really, really, um, a great challenge. It's a challenge socially, and it's really tough to just to run the project in and of itself. When you have 60 developers coming in from around the world and they want to write code together, and you say, look, here's what you're tasked with, here's how we do things, here's, you know, bringing developers up to speed, getting diffs submitted, testing things and all that stuff, it's a huge amount of work um, just for a single project to do that. Now you're talking about two projects that are very different and who are working on different things and who are run different, and, you know, you're asking for collaboration. And that just isn't where the collaboration pieces happen. You know, you don't bring those two big bodies together and say, yep. Work together, we want to benefit from this. What usually happens is there's a single user in each, or developer in each community, and they say, Hey, this is pretty cool, I find this interesting, uh, I want to look at how FreeBSD did it. And they look at the driver and they look at the code, they might reach out to the developer, they might get some feedback, and then they'll start to see how that would fit into OpenBSD as a project because um, there might be licensing issues that are different between FreeBSD and OpenBSD. There might be design decisions that we have to take into account because OpenBSD's USB stack is completely different or the way we are handling interrupts in a particular place of the kernel is completely different or you name it. it, it there's so many things that have to be given consideration to. So even though the work is already done, um, you know, maybe 40% of that translates over into you know, code that we can use in our kernel. Or in our project. And, and vice versa, the same thing. So, um, anyhow, I figured like, I, I wanted to say that because, um, as a, I'm a consumer of OpenBSD as well, and I have limited exposure with FreeBSD, but I know that it sounds like you guys use both of them, and you have, um, you know, you're solving different kind of problems with them. And maybe, Technology just isn't going to be a, a, a one-stop shop or a one-size-fits-all kind of solution. Um, maybe OpenBSD is going to have its strengths where you have to use OpenBSD, and maybe FreeBSD is going to have its strengths where you just have to use FreeBSD. And I understand that that puts a, more of a burden on you as an administrator or as an end user because you have you know different types of systems with different types of administration and different types of tooling. But, um, maybe that's as good as it gets, um, as far as those things go. But anyway, I was, I went on that big long tangent to talk about, you know, Michael Dexter, you know, basically, you know, he said, look, you know, these projects have tried to collaborate. And I, and I agree with that. And I don't really want to get too hung up on it, but I did want to talk a little bit about the viewpoints because there's a user viewpoint and a developer viewpoint and a project viewpoint and maybe the best thing to do is say, well, how does this happen better? And so I'm telling you what usually happens in my mind, what I see happen between the projects. And maybe that's where we need to facilitate things a little bit better because it might, it it would be a very big ask in my opinion, to have these two projects, you know, collaborate on that kind of scale and in that kind of level. It needs to happen outside of that. You know, some guy sitting at home and he says, Hey, I want to get envy and and NVMe working in FreeBSD, and so he starts to pull that in, and what does that look like? So, my opinions, and I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on that, and I'm actually kind of curious what you think, JCS, about what I just said. Well,
0: uh, so, (laughs) another guy, um, he just signed his email, Dan, um, was talking about uh, a similar thing about collaboration and stuff, Mm -hmm. and about importing the in, the Intel graphics stuff from Linux Yeah. and how it's basically being done three times in three different projects um, yep. in Dragonfly uh, by Francois and OpenBSD by JSG and Katanas and in FreeBSD by somebody, I don't know. Yep. Um, and so it would be neat to get all three of them together and maybe even someone uh, that works on the code in Linux um, to basically just talk about it all and say like, Oh, like, because I think Dragonfly is the furthest ahead as far as um, catching up to Linux. Mm -hmm. And maybe OpenBSD is second, and then FreeBSD? I don't know. So it would be interesting or helpful maybe to have the Dragonfly BSD guy um, talk to JSG and uh, the FreeBSD people about the issues that he ran into um, catching up to Linux. Yep. But I think realistically, it's not... Like, uh, I think it's just a manpower thing. Right. Like, JSG and Katenis, like, they work on it, but there's a lot of code to merge. And because of the differences between Dragonfly and OpenBSD, it has to be, there has to be more work there. Like, it has to be different stuff that's only specific on OpenBSD that the Dragonfly guy is not really going to be able to help with. Um, and there's, a ton of code and a ton of Git commits. And I, I don't know if he does them like one by one or in chunks or whatever, but um, like you were saying, it's, it's only a few people. And so it's just uh, an issue of time, I guess. Yeah.
1: And I think sometimes that's actually harder when you increase the scope of the problem to say, well, how is so-and-so going to solve it? And how are we going to solve it? And how are they going to solve it? Whereas if you just say, how am I going to solve it? And then you solve it, and then another person will say, "Well, I'm gonna have to change this because we need to address that issue a different way mm-hmm. and i and i mean i I don't do that kind of i mean those things are huge like when you when you talk about that kind of stuff, it's a huge task, so then when you increase the scope threefold or or even double it, you know I think you're putting even more burden on you know those three people. That's my opinion." Um, they might think differently of it. Um I've talked to Mark and um JSG, and and they don't have any animosity about things. I mean, they just read the code and pull in what they can use and say where the problem is and try and come up with a way to fix it. And I think that, you know, that's what takes the time. They say, like, oh, well, we're going to have to figure out a way to do this before we can do that. And the next project says, well, not only do we need to do that, but we need to do the other thing, too. So... You know, sometimes the overlap just, I think, is more of a burden or creates more work than it brings benefit. Yeah. I think the BSD projects are very, very different. Like, think about, uh, when you, um, have a project with, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 commits to it. It's nothing like the original project. There's probably very little left of the original project. Um, maybe less so in certain areas than others, but I think these BSDs are very, very, very different on a technical level too. And um, so we talked about how the projects are run, but the kernels and the user land and the tools and everything are very, very, very different. So as much as I would really love to see that, you know, kind of unification happen there's a big, big barrier on the technical side, too. They're not not the same stuff anymore. And um, especially, you know, we talked last week about performance. OpenBSD says, well, this is a very minor performance hit to be able to have Malik do this particular security feature for ASLR and all this kind of stuff. And, the you know, the next project may not want that and um or they might take a different approach you know they say well we're gonna we have a different mechanism to do that so they're very very different even though we're trying to do the same thing we're trying to skin the same cat <laughs> it winds up looking a lot different each time
0: mm-hmm.
1: so yeah oh and all right so we've we've said this before of like um we're not going to be like a, a help show you don't want our help you just want to hear us complain about things trust me um but there was somebody asking about um dmz's and firewalls and using pf to do that stuff mm. um there the, the only thing i can offer for that is if you have a few network interfaces take a look at the um examples there's like uh example configs pf.conf and all that kind of stuff and they have uh vpn examples and all this all that, all that kind of stuff most of what i have is directly from that like i'm not some networking genius and i don't go out there and write my own configs from scratch because I know what I'm doing. I start there I change what I need to change and that's a really good starting point. So have a look at those docs. Um, The PF documentation is really good and the examples are uh, really good in there. So start there with that um, particular PF DMZ wireless kind of um, uh, configuration that you want to set up for your home office and all that kind of stuff.
0: If there's ever a a conference for PF, it should be called (laughs) (laughs) pf.conf. That's all I have to offer. (laughs) I like it. Yeah.
1: That's awesome stuff. So I think that's really all we had to talk about. A lot of uh, people emailing in and us replying to uh, the bulk of those emails by covering the topics we did and um just thanking you guys it's been fantastic to hear from you each week and we'll continue to do our best to put together great content and um we look forward to hearing from you uh each week it's it's been great
0: so that's it for this episode uh if there's anything you'd like to you just said this yeah basically but if you'd like if there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about and if, can you guys tell that this is scripted? I have it written in our uh, little CRM thing here.
1: It takes us four hours to record this. We script everything out and plan and research. Yeah. We're too honest for that.
0: If there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about in a future episode, you can reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM and through our website at garbage.fm. Brandon, where can people find you?
1: You can find me on Twitter. I'm at no mercy mod with a K N O W. And I'm also on Google Plus from time to time. And uh, lately, though, I've been away from the computer because there's a whole different world out there without any conflict or pain or operating systems. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I just made that up.
0: That's weird. I'm on the web at jcs.org and on Twitter at jcs and also not really on the computer lately.
1: (laughs) Cheers, guys. You're listening to Garbage, where we talk about technology, usually garbage.